from Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 138. Today's show is brought to you by Encapsula, Text Expander, Mac Weldon, and FreshBooks. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Welcome, welcome home. I arrived home today from the Atlanta Pen Show, where I was uh, taking part in pen addict stuff. Um, yes. I'll put a link in the show notes. We did a live show. We had 100 pen nerds in a room, and we recorded an episode, and it was great. And if you're interested in the pen addict at all, maybe you've never listened before, this might be a good jumping on point. Live episodes are the way to go. We did the we did that live uh, clockwise at Ull, and that was great. Like, there's laughter, and mm-hmm. people applaud at the end, and yep. it's amazing. It's great when you start the show and people are, like, screaming, you know? It's great. Oh, it's so wow. good. I really want to do more of them, but it's it's really difficult. You know, it's like it's a difficult yeah. thing to to, to yeah, get it all set up. It, it, all the logistics of it, including the technical stuff, it's a it's a big deal. Yep. But uh, I'm glad you had a you good time. That's why we're if you are uh, wondering why this podcast episode dropped in your feed a day late, uh, Mike forgot what day it was. I sure uh, did. when he planned when uh-huh. he planned his trip uh-huh. and 100%. said, "No, I'll be back on Monday." And then he realized he was not going to be back on Monday. At least so I realized on like Friday or Saturday that I wasn't going to be home until Tuesday. Right, like luckily yeah. enough, I didn't recognize this on Monday morning. Yeah, or it's like Sunday night at the airport. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would have been very unfortunate. <laughs> Where's my plane? It's not here. Yeah, so it's good. I, and and I realized just as as you picked up uh, the the call today that this is the first time we've done a we've done a show where I know what your office looks like. Yep, because you've been because here. I've been in it. Mm-hmm. That's right. I Jason, know where you live. You do. Oh, dear. I mean, like, literally, I know where you live. I've been to your house. It's not, I didn't mean that to be threatening, but it came out threatening. I have just come back from the U.S. And in the hotel, in the parking lot of the hotel that I stay at, there is a Waffle House in, in the uh-huh. parking lot. So Jill's question for Snell Talk this week, Jill asked, Jason, pancakes or waffles? Waffles. You're a waffle guy, huh? I mean, people who follow me on Twitter know know this already. In fact, I just made waffles for dinner a couple nights ago because we had nothing in the house and to, didn't want to go shopping. And so I said, we'll do breakfast for dinner. And I made waffles. I, I, I like waffles. They have shape. They mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, they can be crispy and all that. Pancakes are up. nice. I don't want to run down pancakes, but they're just kind of, you know, they're floppy and, and insubstantial and they're fine. But waffles are the, the winner here. So I'm going to say, nobody asked me, but I'm going to say, I like pancakes more, but I've never really had good homemade waffles. So I I need good homemade waffles and then I can make my decision. I don't know. I don't know. Waffles are waffles. I don't know if good homemade waffles. I mean, like. I don't know. I mean, Waffle House waffles are not very good. (laughs) uh, All right. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. There, There are good waffles out there. I'll just say that. But I like them because they got the they got the little holes, mm-hmm. uh, little indentations, so you can get like syrup in there. Or I do butter. like that. Um, I do like and, that. And uh, in Belgium, where they serve waffles from a little cart, and they kind of they kind of bake them with the the syrupy stuff kind of on the griddle. The Belgians' waffles are the best. And if oh, you've yeah. only had Bel- mm-hmm. Belgian quote unquote Belgian waffles, which in, in a place that's not Belgium, you have not had the Belgians' uh, waffles. So. Again, I, I promote Belgium as a place you should go. And when you're there, beer, waffles, chocolate, French fries. I have done all of those things in that place. And I agree with that assessment 100%. They are the best. 
Yep. So, Jason, nothing happened on April the 18th. So <laughs> Of course nothing happened on April the 18th. Hashtag Jason was right. You may remember mm. weeks and weeks ago, I think we were discussing this when Apple Park was announced, I brought right. up the fact that at WWDC on the wall there was a call out to a date which said, Hello April 18th, 2017. And I thought that there might be something about that date. There was nothing about that date. Uh, what actually happens on that day is it's a tax return day in the United States of America. Yep. And that's probably what Apple were referring to. So, uh-huh. hashtag Jason was right. Nothing happened on that day except people paid their taxes. Everybody have a waffle. Uh, I saw on The Verge this week that Samsung announced that the pre-orders for the Galaxy S8 were 30% higher year over year compared to the Galaxy S7. And that Samsung is saying this is their best ever pre-order number. The reason I bring this up is because we spent spent quite a lot of time following the exploding Note 7 fiasco. Um, And I know, you know, I know everybody knows this is not that line of phones, but it's Samsung's phone that came directly after that. So, in theory, will have been affected with all of the press and all of the bad coverage about the fact that their phones are exploding. In fact, every review I watched or read basically led with the fact that the Note 7 exploded, right? Like, it was yeah, it was the totally. big trend. Um, rightly so. I mean, you can't write the review of this phone <laughs> without bringing that up because it affects it. You know, like, it seems like Samsung actually undercooked the battery in this. Like, they put a weaker battery than they maybe would have like it doesn't have a real great improvement on battery life in any way so it's interesting to me to see that it seems that people have decided um they don't care and that either they think that this is not a problem or they believe that samsung can fix the situation and or what I expect is happening is people are seeing the look of that phone and they're like, oh my God, I want that. And they're buying it and they don't care about the fact that the note exploded. I So I have two theories here. One is um, the Galaxy S8 flagship is not the note. It's not the phablet. It's not the huge phone. And the S Galaxy S7 is Samsung's most popular phone. So... Yeah, I think what this says, what and what this says to us is the Samsung brand as a whole is not has not been so tarnished that it is dramatically depressing sales. Yep. Although we will never know what the sales might have been exactly, which we'll get to my second theory, second in a moment. We'll never tell us what they might have been that this might have been an even greater blockbuster of a phone uh, if they if they uh, had not had their problems last time. But um, but we'll have to see what happens with the Note 8. They've resolved that they're doing a Note 8. They're not renaming it. They're just doubling down on it. We'll see how those sales go. Although, I've got a feeling that they'll go okay, if only because everybody who wanted a, a Note 7 couldn't have one or had to give it back, right? Um, so, but we'll see. We'll see if that brand it, it, sales are suppressed. It's also possible that people who used to buy notes are like, forget that. I'm just going to get the. I'm just going to get the S8 and be done. So that's also possible. My second theory here is that this, you know, Apple showed it. When you make substantial changes to the phone's look and ergonomics, you can get a sales boost. When the, when Apple made the big phones, they had a huge sales boost. So maybe the, you know, small bezel, super interesting looking design of the S8 
is something that consumers really yeah. respond to. And because, you know, that that consumers respond to changes in design, especially um, if they are uh, ones that you can see very readily and it makes the phone look cool or makes any product look cool. They, they respond to that. So I think that maybe that's part of it, too. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's what this does tell us is that Samsung as a global phone brand doesn't seem to have been uh, smashed by, you know, all the bad press for the note at least when it comes to their most imp- most important product, right? Their their single yeah. most important product is the S8. And they um, it's interesting that they were kind of paranoid about it, though. Like, the New York Times, I think, didn't get a review unit in advance. Because, <laughs> I mean, I wonder what's going on there, whether they're, they're uh, a little concerned or whether they're trying to have some payback to certain news organizations who they felt covered the the Note 7 thing aggressively. Um, I don't know quite what's going on with that, but... It feels like an almost Apple-like move, really, doesn't it? You know? I know, right? Yeah. Uh, but by all accounts, it's a successful launch, um, and so we can make uh, a lot out of the Note 7 debacle and the fact that the leader of Samsung got arrested <laughs> and stuff like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, Samsung, as a global technology giant not just in the phone space but all sorts of places still seems to just be motoring along and their most important smartphone product is doing great and i think you honestly i think you know that in the fact that the design is trumping anything else right i think so people are seeing that and they're like whoa like i mean i've said in other places and i'll say it here like i think that's the best looking phone out right now at least sure you know, like a, a regular consumer is going to look at it and go, "Wow, that's really cool! I want it! I want it! I want it!" Right? Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's not that 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 makes perfect sense. And let's keep in mind too that you know we talk a lot about um, well, we don't on this show, but people in general talk a lot about like Apple's market share and Android market share and things like that. But in terms of like successful smartphone products, the two most successful smartphone products are the Galaxy S series. And the iPhone. Yep. Like, everybody else is way behind. Yeah. Those are the two. Mm-hmm. So they, they're going to be the best. And if there is a competition there, and I would argue that I'm not sure people are really kind of hopping back and forth between the Galaxy and the iPhone I so much. I don't think it would be substantial, right? People do it, but I don't think it's a hugely right. substantial numbers. I think, especially for those two phones particularly, people have the one that they like. If, right. if you start moving into like HTC and LG, like I think people move around a lot more. Right. So I would actually argue that the... The biggest competition here is like Galaxy S8 doing well is eliminating even more of the oxygen from the high-end Android yeah. smartphone makers yep. who compete with Samsung. And that's an it's kind of a fascinating dynamic to see that, you know, there's Google and there's Android and that's great, but then there's Samsung and Samsung's trying to exert itself in software in certain places and it's also trying to uh, stomp out stomp on all the competition and 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 on the google side on the android side mm-hmm. so that's kind of interesting too so it's a it's a weird dynamic but i think um if you care about the iphone i don't know i mean i think the most interesting thing here is that samsung seems to have set the bar in terms of this design and all the rumors that we've heard about a new iphone suggest that apple is basically on the same path to do the same thing and it's not because either company company in this case is copying one another it's because this is sort of where the technology is capable of going today um 
because and, and full credit to Samsung for years Samsung was doing fast follow on Apple where Apple would release a product and then 6 months later you'd see the Samsung product look exactly the same and Samsung made a product that does not look like the iPhone right it looks mm-hmm. it looks different they are pushing it forward here and full credit to them for that because App- Apple's going to have to respond yeah funnily enough we might end up in September going oh wow that really looks like the S8 <laughs> And that will be yeah, a absolutely. really interesting thing. And, and I think that it is a, it's a sign of the times, whatever that may be. And, and I think it's a sign of two things. It's the speeding up of Samsung and the slowing down of Apple. And it's resulted in this product. And I think, yep. it's, I think it's really interesting to see the tides turn. You know, it's, we've had 10 years of it being in the other direction. And Samsung, for their faults, have finally gotten to the point where they're able to produce something quicker. So. Yeah, I mean, the the other way to view it is that there's a whole uh, collection of places where Samsung has tried to do things that are forward-looking, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and most of them have been ridiculous, like, it'll we'll look at your eyes, and if you don't look at your phone, we'll pause your video. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't want that. Stop. Yeah, their software, um, I mean, they've still got a load of that stupid stuff, software stuff in this phone. Right? They like do. The, the software stuff is, is still And their intelligent weird. agent that didn't ship with it. But yes, um, mm-hmm. this is a case where they made some very specific hardware decisions that seem to, you know, that everybody seems to like and make the phone look good. And it's, uh, you know, and Apple has been working on this too. Uh, but because of their, their schedules, you know, Samsung got there first. And uh, in the end, getting there first probably doesn't matter. <laughs> But uh, but it does it does raise the bar, and if Apple doesn't get there, maybe it maybe it matters. So I just wanted to address some follow up uh, in regards to yours and Ren's discussion from last week about the iPad Pro and kind of where it is and where it's going. Sure, is this internal sort of like internal follow up where you're following up? Yeah, or are there other people following up? Is well, this about you? I don't know. We'll have to ask Syracuse how he defines this. I'm not sure. Okay. Right. Fair enough. So Simon wrote in and he said, two themes regarding quality iPad software are a lack of pro-level software on the iPad versus the Mac and inability of developers to earn what they need from iPad-specific software due to consumer cost expectations. Could you both envision Apple creating an iPad Pro section of the App Store that changed the calculus of it? A niche gated community within the App Store with a few conditions. Software limited to the iPad Pro line, a small pool of apps that carry a higher price, emphasis on utilizing Pro hardware features of the iPad like the pencil and smart connector, a definite upgrade path utilizing subscriptions, and more customer information shared between Apple and the developer. Could be a pie-in-the-sky type thing, but Apple should create a path to sell 20, 50, or 100 dollar uh, apps in order to emphasize the production features of the ipad what do you think so you know reasonable people can differ but i i actually kind of reject the premise that apple um needs to do something like create an ipad pro i mean section like in the sense that you'd feature them sure but i i feel like the path forward here is for apple to continue doing what it started to do which is differentiating the ipad pro by making the ipad the lower end system and making the iPad Pro the high end system, it's already differentiating the two products. And there's the expensive iPad and the cheaper iPad. Yep. And that's a start. I think there's nothing in today's climate that prevents any of the things that Simon wrote in about from happening without any policy changes from Apple, without a single change. Like lack of pro level software on the iPad versus the Mac. Well, first off, there's a lot of pro level software on the iPad. That I think is a mi- I think that's a mistake to say that. It's not all there, but there's a lot of really great pro level software on the iPad today. 
and the platform certainly makes it possible for them there to be more now i'm a little disappointed in adobe for doing something like breaking photoshop into like eight different little apps and not embracing the fact that maybe we just want to run photoshop on our ipads but maybe they'll get there at some point i have the five photoshop apps or whatever on my ipad and quite frankly i use photoshop because i understand kind of the premise of it because i've been using it for 20 years 25 years at this point 30 years i don't know a very long time uh, and then on iOS, uh, it loses all of its uh, help. The brand doesn't have the stickiness to me on the iPad because I'm. It, it's not familiar at all. It's like, well, wait a second, how many different Photoshop apps do I have and how do I use them and where do I go? And it's kind of a mess. But they that's on Adobe. They could change it. They've got a subscription model. The Microsoft Office apps on iOS are great and they have a subscription model. And it's... And it, and it's sustainable. Um, the inability of developers to earn what they need from iPad-specific software. Well, you look at um, the Omni Group. They charge higher prices or they have a subscription model and you can get the money you need. All that needs to change is that people who are making professional software on iOS need to charge the right price for it. And I think having the iPad Pro be more differentiated and realizing that pro software is not going to cost $5 and that people who are interested in buying apps for $5 or $2 are not your market and just don't price your apps that way. All that has to happen is that you price the apps higher and, again, then they have to sell enough copies for that to be sustainable, either a la carte or through the subscription model, which seems like a pretty good model too. The the challenge is going to be you need to get pros to use the systems. I think that Apple differentiating the iPad Pro helps push the, the, the product line down there. But I don't think it, it'll succeed or fail as a market based on the success of the iPad Pro hardware and whether people can sell professional software at a sustainable rate. That It will succeed or fail regardless of whether there's a special iPad Pro app store. I just don't think that needs to happen. I just don't think it matters. Now, you know, maybe a a showcase for iPad Pro, you know, which they already have, they like that, yeah. great on iPad Pro is fine, but, you know, just charge a, a sustainable rate for your software. Uh, use the Pro hardware. I agree with that. You know, absolutely. Um, if you're building professional software for the iPad, you should assume that your professional users are going to use the iPad Pro and focus on that stuff. Um, and there's already a subscription model. The 30% goes down after they've been on it for a year. So there's a there's a lot of ways you can do that if you use Apple's model. And if you um, do what Adobe and Microsoft are doing, you sell a subscription on your own and you get all the money. So there are lots of ways to do this now. I, I, think, I think it's misguided to say that this is a problem that Apple can fix by tinkering with the details in the App Store. Um, again, reasonable people can differ, but in, in my mind, this is all about Apple building a better platform that's more appealing to professional users in terms of the iPad Pro and differentiating it from the iPad, which they're doing already. We're seeing it, and I'm, I think it will be even clearer with the next round of iPads whenever they come, and hopefully with the next version of iOS. And then it's for developers to say, you know, I'm going to have the courage, sorry to use that word, to say, yeah, I'm going to charge a reasonable amount of money for this product because it's a Pro product for iPad Pro, and I'm not going to try and if, if somebody's not going to buy it because it doesn't cost five dollars, too bad. I don't want that market. That's not the market I'm interested in. We're no longer chasing iPhone users for ninety nine cents. We are building professional products, and that can happen. And you know, the i there's a chicken and egg thing there about the software and the hardware and how you get that to happen. And Apple should be evangelizing this and encouraging this, but I don't think they need to actually like create a a new 
place for the iPad Pro. I think they just, you know, they need to make it clear that it's a pro level system and get, you know, and software needs to be charged accordingly to be sustainable. Speaking of professional applications, professional developers and clear business models, this week's episode is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. Text Expander for Teams is a productivity multiplier. You get a shared knowledge base to ensure your team communicates quickly and accurately together. With Text Expander, everyone in your team will share common replies that can be worded by your best writers. They're all immediately accessible and searchable through simple abbreviations and keyboard shortcuts. The response that everyone needs would be just a couple of keys away and any changes that you need to make are updated seamlessly in the background. And what's great about Text Expander is that it's available on all of the platforms that your team could be on, Mac, iOS, and Windows as well. I'm having some problems with my iMac right now. I think I need to zap the PRAM or something, but my login items are not sticking. So there are just a couple of apps, not all of them, that just don't open when they're supposed to. And like, it's, and unfortunately, right now, Text Expander is caught up in this. So I'm turning on my iMac and I'm typing things and nothing's happening, right? And I'm like, something's broken. And it's because I'm typing my Text Expander keyboard abbreviations and nothing's expanding. And it it really upsets my brain when that doesn't happen because Text Expander has become an incredibly important way that I get my work done. And one of the things that I love on iOS as well is, you know, I can use the the keyboard, which it comes with, you know, with the Text Expander app on iOS, or so many applications integrate with Text Expander as well. So Bear, the app that I use for a lot of uh, writing of, of sponsor copy and stuff like that, it integrates with Text Expander. So I get all my snippets there and all my favorite apps as well. Now, April is te- the new Text Expander's first anniversary. In that time, the Text Expander team have added team statistics, group notes, public groups, monthly active reports, the Windows app, tons of client software updates, and so much more. And we here at RelayFM would like to extend our congratulations to Smile and Text Expander for hitting this milestone. And we will wish them every success in the coming years. You can go and support this awesome team, check out incredible applications, and celebrate their anniversary by going to textexpander.com slash upgradefm. That's textexpander.com slash U-P-G-R-A-D-E-F-M. Thank you so much to Textexpander from Smile for their support of this show. So at the end of today's episode, we're going to be talking about Blade Runner for Mike at the Movies. Yes. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to mention this because I wasn't here last week, so I didn't remind anybody, but we're doing that at the end of today's episode. <laughs> Consider yourself reminded. You have been reminded. So if you look at the length of this episode and you think, oh my God, why is it so long? The answer is Mike at the movies is, is why. The answer is Blade Runner. That's the reason. Yep. Jason, you put in this big topic today. Can you I explain did. to me what's on your mind? how big it is but it's something i I thought was interesting we we talked over the weekend when you were in atlanta about the uber story that mike isaac wrote for the new york times um and if we wanted to talk about uber again i was like man i don't want to talk about uber again and that story that story is like full of it's got some awful stuff in it about tim cook calling in uh travel travis kalanick and saying you know you're in trouble because you're doing this thing and it was super sleazy where they were they were uh finding ways to tag um uh phone hardware using apis that were i think people figure probably um private but accessible 
anyway, basically they're doing like tracking in the sense of do not track kind of tracking where mm-hmm. they, were, they were able to kind of fingerprint a user and their device in a unique way so that if they saw them on the web later, they would be able to recognize them or if they wiped the phone and then, and then uh, reinstalled that they would be able to tell that that was the same thing. And they said they were doing it for fraud detection. But one of the things, they knew that it was counter to Apple's guidelines because yeah. they put in geofencing to basically turn off the feature mm-hmm. if it was in Cupertino. Jeez. I mean, it's like no matter what they were doing it for, whether it was some good thing or not, it was something a new shouldn't be doing. Really, at its core, that's they, the part of right. it. Right? You knew you shouldn't do this to the point that you made it so nobody in Apple would find it. And also, do they think? I mean, either either they thought that Apple was that bad, or Apple was that bad. But like, if you're Apple, you've got to do lots of things to like test this stuff, including presumably spoofing where you're located in order to set an arbitrary location and see what happens in that location, so that you can test out Uber. And instead of ordering a car to uh, to one infinite loop, you order it in Philadelphia or something like that. And so did they, and they obviously didn't get away from it. But that was 2015, right? Like Uber, in the grand scheme of things, Uber has, I would argue, probably done way worse stuff in the intervening time (laughs) for people to get mad about this kind of older thing that they did and people were saying that some of it was related to maybe stuff that's getting closed up or has been closed up in ios it was not like physical location tracking that's one of the funny things that came up is people assumed this meant like uber had some strange black magic where you could delete the uber app and it's they still knew where you were but in reality um, people leaped to that conclusion which was not true because there was this whole other story of uber hanging on to your location data after you closed the uber app so they could see where you went which again falls under the category of sleazy things that uber has done since this happened and so people jump to conclusions about this because of prior behavior on their part which is kind of uh, reasonable in a way even though not accurate in this case but this is all a prologue because i think the most interesting thing or one of the most interesting things to come out of this whole article was about user data and about in broad strokes how whole businesses and mostly internet businesses but whole businesses exist to do super sleazy things with personal information of people on the internet and 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 you you stop for a moment and think well how do they get that personal information and the answer is they create services that are free that help you do something and then they turn around and sell your information to other people. Mm-hmm. And and this is, you know, when we talk about like if 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 the product is free, then you're the product. <laughs> you're not the customer, you're the product. Um, and people have made that argument about like Google and things like that. And there's some truth to that. But, but I want to take it out of the Apple versus Google wars and talk about it a little more abstractly, which is there's a company called Slice that does a lot of competitive uh, data stuff. And they they claim to know things about people's internet purchase habits. And the question, and this has come up over the years, it's like, how do they do that? And the answer is they have access to bulk anonymized data from people's inboxes of the receipts that they get from online orders they place. And the question is, the next question is, where do they get that information? The answer is Slice bought a company called Unroll Me that does this, that Unroll Me is this thing that is a web app that you authorize to look at your Gmail inbox, basically, your inbox. It connects to your email server, reads your email, 
And what it offers the user is the ability to like auto unsubscribe from mailing lists and stuff like that. It's a it's a free, helpful service. A pretty cool service, right? Like the idea yeah. and everything behind it. It's like, yeah, this is cool. It's yeah, it's okay. I mean, you can probably just do that yourself. But yeah, it's it's like we're going to help you do this. And there are other services like this that do other things, and which is a whole other issue because some of them are legitimate and some of them are not. But imagine this is a company whose business model is give people a useful uh, tool for free in exchange for being able to take the contents of their email inbox and sell it. Maybe not specific emails, but maybe it's anonymized, maybe it's just data, maybe they're just using a sample, although there's at least a rumor that somebody is spreading that at some point they were actually storing the contents of everybody's email on an Amazon S3 server in an unsecure fashion. They deny it. Um, but somebody who says that they were working at a company that almost bought Unroll Me said that it's true. So I don't really know, but they could have done that. Maybe they didn't, but they could have because they've they, they have access to everybody's email boxes. They may have not even meant to, but they might have done it. Right? Like it's they, very they might possible. have done it accidentally. They might have been unsecure. You know, imagine having you know we, we had a, we had around the election we had all these people who had their email compromised. Imagine you personally are like, oh well, that would never happen to me. Meanwhile, you've got a service that you don't know who they are or what they do, and they are silently uh, downloading all your email yep. because you let them. Mm-hmm. And this was their business model. Like the Unroll Me business model is how do we make money from this free service? Well, we gathered the data. And then we sell it. And that was the whole idea. And, you know, they, the way, the way that Mike Isaac put it in the New York Times is, is Uber used this uh, competitive intelligence. They purchased data from Slice using an email digest service it owns named Unroll Me. Slice collected its customers' Lyft receipts and sold the anonymized data to Uber, which Uber used as a proxy for the health of Lyft's business. And we've seen this, Slices use this for all sorts of other purchase information. It's like, how are people buying things on the internet? Well, we have a sample that we can use to tell, as a proxy, to tell how it's going. It turns out their sample is that they unroll me has everybody's inboxes so that they can scan it for information. And again, that's a trade-off that maybe people are willing to make for that service, but... I think it's um I, I think it's it's something that shows you how this economy on the internet works where you get something for free but it's more complex trade than you ever really think about in terms of access to your data and we all need to think about it more like we can we we all need to think about this stuff more. You need to check the terms terms of service when you sign up. You need to ponder a little bit about who is paying to keep this company afloat. And the problem is a lot of te- tech companies these days are VC funded and the and their business model is give everything away for free and then figure out a business model. So sometimes it can be hard because they're not always created with with uh with selling your data in mind, but they may get there if that's the place that they can find money. Like that face app, you know, that people are passing around. It's like mm-hmm. it's free and it's like you can make yourself look old or do a gender swap or make yourself look young and pretty. Um, that's a free app and, and, and everybody's uploading their pictures to their server. Mm-hmm. And my question with that has always been like, what's step two here? What are they doing with all of our pictures? Because what, you know, what... And maybe it's nothing and they're not keeping them and they've got some other business model, but you got to ask the question, like, why is this happening? Who is this company? What are they doing with the, with my data? There are a bunch of business models that any company that offers free can pursue. And I think it's always important 
to bear in mind that one of them is this. And it's something that I think about, you know, like, and, and people get frustrated with, with my approach to this stuff sometimes, like especially uh, people that, that have a great fear of Google. Yeah. But I know the trade-off, you know. Right. I, I don't know it explicitly, but I, but I know it abstractly. It's the same as something like Unroll Me, right? If I used a service like this, I wouldn't necessarily think that they were doing what they did, but I would know that they're doing something. And it's up right. to you if you are willing to say, well, let me think about what my data is worth and what they may get about me and what they may actually be able to really do with this data. And then decide if I think that this is worth it for me. So let's let's use this example, right? Now, this, this Lyft email receipt thing, I mean, a lot of people are using this to say how terrible Uber is, but I actually don't think Uber is at fault in this, to be honest. They were offered this data, right, by a company. Yeah, but they're, they're buying market intelligence. Yes, yeah. I'm sure it's Lyft not... do it as well, right? Like, I'm know. sure lots of companies do it. Because the, you get a company like Slice come to you and be like, I can tell you about your customers. And it's like, well, yeah, you buy mm-hmm. that data. Slice is at fault, really, for for getting the data without telling people you know but, but whatever like this is like a, um you're familiar with experian the, the credit referencing oh, company sure I, I was going to mention financial stuff that is that this happens all the time yeah go ahead when i worked in marketing like this is the type of data we would buy and it's like it's very broad data but they can say like we can take this algorithm that we built and we can overlay it over your customer base and we can tell you who we think have children and then you can use that data however you think you should use that data. This is how marketing is done, right? But the data has to come from somewhere. A lot of the time that data comes from places that would be normal, places that you would expect. Like, so for example, when I was in the bank, that data came from our transaction information. Right. And everyone knows we can see that transactions, right? And I feel like that that is something that's like, okay, like if you've based something on the fact that I've used my credit card of you, well, you know that. So like, the bank wasn't selling the data; it was using a model, right? Right. The, and, this and data f- is as somewhere. far as as far as we know, Slice also gets data from places like financial institutions. I'm sure, right? they do. Slice, they Slice, mm-hmm. Slice. You know, probably has a deal with a bunch of major credit card makers to just again anonymize, but say like this many Apple transactions at mm-hmm. this average self. What you know, whatever the data is, and they'll say it's like it's anonymized. We'll we'll do things as parts of our privacy policy. It doesn't mean that they're not selling data there. In fact, that's one of the. I mean, I think people people sometimes don't understand that even if you find a revenue model for a company for a product or a service that you're using and say oh this is how they make their money chances are that even if you find the primary way they make their money that's not the only way they make yeah, their money so this happen- many companies dealing data exchange In- incremental revenue yeah. is the phrase that always got thrown around at idg and it's just like this is how businesses work is mm-hmm. okay we have or i should say a lot of businesses work is all right we make a million dollars Yay. But you know what? If we did this other thing, this this person has come to us and said they'll write us a check for $100,000 to do to give them some data and 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 we can fit it in our privacy policy. So let's do that. And so at IDG it was things like list rental where you sign up and pay back in the day, you pay $25 or $30 to get a year of the magazine sent to you in your mailbox. And guess what happens? Anybody who's subscribed to a magazine knows this. Like you start getting junk mail Mm -hmm. 
to the person who subscribed to that magazine. Well, how does that happen? It's like magazine publishers, one of their incremental revenue sources was selling their mailing lists to people who wanted to send mail to people. They would be like, oh, your your audience is fairly affluent. I mean, you'd start marketing. Like, look at how affluent our audience is. These people have a lot of money and they're very tech forward. You want to market to them. And sometimes that was things like the, you know, Mac catalog or something like that where it was totally legit like a perfect fit but sometimes it's just like uh, you know Condé Nast wants to find new subscribers for Condé Nast Traveler and they buy a bunch of magazine lists and send them uh, subscription offers and that that like happened all the time and and then in, in the modern context email lists work the same way where there's email list rental where you know you get paid to spam your own customers for, with an ad for someone else and is that the core business no but still it, it it is it takes a very particular kind of principled business person who is thinking about the big picture which the danger is the person who's making these decisions is not the ceo thinking about the big picture it's a salesperson who's got a, a revenue target to hit and they look and they say oh i can get an easy hundred thousand right here so let's do it and it takes a big person to say, you know what? We're selling out our customers. I'd rather turn that money away and not sell out our customers because you're you're turning away revenue for your business. And if your business is struggling even a little or has pressure from investors to grow or you know any number of reasons why, you make that calculation and say, nah, it's fine, <laughs> right? And you and you sell out your customers. It happens all the time. I think it's worth just pointing out at this stage that neither of us like this or think that this is necessarily the way the world should work. Nor, no, it's gross. Nor do we want to apply these <laughs> practices to the to the businesses we both run. But I think we've just both been in the corporate world enough to know that it really does happen. Right? We've seen some things. We've yeah, seen we've some seen... terrible things, you know, mm -hmm. and or had to be involved in them in some way. Right. Yeah. Because so, it was the way that things were done. Exactly. So I, I guess, you know, what what's the lesson here? I think the lesson is to be to to be aware, like you said, be aware of the trade-offs that you think you're probably making. Be savvy. Don't take something for nothing. Think of think of what is happening behind the scenes. Be, you know, be aware of it. And and sometimes the I would say sometimes the trade-off is gonna be what you're willing to do. Like I, I have my domain in Gmail, uh, you know, Google apps, mm -hmm. you know, which, which actually is a paid service. Now it's not, it used to be like a freebie thing, but it's like a paid service. Now Google apps is, that's uh, they don't call that's it double that. dipping, right? Like from they, Google, cause that you pay them, yeah. but they're still looking at all that data. Yeah. Well, that's true. Know? There, there's still some, although I, I don't know what the security differences are, but yeah, basically it's, it, I'm sure it's different, true. but like, they're not like, Oh, we won't but, pay any attention to that anymore. But I'm kind of okay with that because the Google services are yes. are very good and I I am willing and also I have to say I believe that Google's model is the the stuff that they're doing is very much like looking at stuff in context in order to serve ads or in different places to me because ads is their business. Would I consider switching if I got a clearer si signal that Google is actually like trawling through my archive and selling the data? Yeah, I would consider it. I would consider the trade-off. All you can do, everybody makes their own decision for different reasons, but you got to be try to be savvy about it. 
consider what the trade-offs are mm-hmm. and um and then maybe it doesn't matter maybe anonymizing your you know your receipt data in exchange for this convenient service is not a big deal that, that's fine but the awareness of who have you authorized to look at your email inbox who have you authorized to po- to look at your twitter followers list or post on your twitter account just maybe look maybe check and see you might be surprised and it's worth thinking about it's just worth thinking about because yeah. this is the reality is there are whole businesses many of them that this is what they do this is part of the economy of of technology right now and i i do think it's dangerous i saw a tweet i can't remember who it might have been kara swisher tweeted about like watch out silicon valley because this kind of stuff is the thing that is going to make turn the public against you and turn the government against you. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and right now, honestly, this is the sort of thing that's more likely to happen in the EU than in the US because the EU is, has much more sort of like business regulation stuff that they are concerned with than the US is. But, you know, if it becomes politically expedient because people are up in arms about privacy breaches and reselling of, of consumer data, if it becomes politically expedient for that to be uh, a quick win for politicians it could happen and it could really blast a lot of uh, tech industry business models so it's this is the world we live in and it's something to be aware of one last point on this me and you have spent so much time talking about the fact that we don't want big podcast data right you know like we yeah. spent all this time talking about the fact that we don't want this tracking information we don't want the information about what people are listening to, where they, you know, we don't want any of that. This is why, because we know what that looks like. <sighs> yeah, and this is the next the companies step. Yeah. that are asking for this. Where does their money come from? Venture capital. Yeah, this so. is all. This is this is all like yeah. Find find other ways to monetize everybody. Monetize is a key word. I've, I've never liked that word. And so, since the very beginning, the way I describe it is the word monetize to me always invokes this image, which is, it's almost like from a cartoon. It's a human being standing somewhere looking around, just a generic human being. And like a wizard or something comes out with a magic wand with, you know, like a little stick with a like a, a star on the end and goes, bing and that person turns into a pile of money bad for the person great for the wizard because the wizard's got money now that's monetizing (laughs) this week's episode is brought to you in part by our friends over at mac weldon they make the most comfortable underwear socks shirts undershirts hoodies and sweatpants that you're ever gonna wear mac weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now and they're so confident of this fact that they have a no questions asked return policy if you buy something from Mac Weldon and for some reason you don't like your first pair, you keep them, they'll refund you, no questions asked. That's how comfortable they are in knowing that you're going to be comfortable in their clothes. By pairing premium fabrics with meticulous attention to detail and coupling of a simple shopping experience, Mac Weldon delivers a new level of daily comfort straight to your door. They make undershirts that stay tucked, socks that stay up, and waistbands that don't roll down everything they make is made with premium cotton blended with natural fibers so jason i got off a long haul flight today what do you think i was wearing you were wearing the uh the sweatpants i was wearing my sweatpants i was which one do you have do you have the ace pants or the or the sunday pants i have the ace pants all right and i honestly like i talk about them all the time i know i talk about them all the time but I just, 
I have to underscore just how comfortable they are, and they really are, and they look good, and I, I love these things. I love them. They make me so comfortable. I sleep in them on these planes, right? Like I'm, they're, they're coupling of just like my general stuff, and they they're, they're nice. They keep me warm when it's cold, and they keep me cool when it's warm. I I really really love these sweatpants. And they make me feel good when I'm traveling. Not only do Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well. And they also have their line of silver underwear and shirts as well. That's naturally antimicrobial as well. So some cool science stuff, kids. Listeners of this show can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com with the code UPGRADE. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. 20% off when you use the code UPGRADE at checkout. Thank you so much to Mac Weldon for their support of this show and Relay FM. Affiliate linking. So when we apply this idea to the App Store, you can do this. Anyone can do this. You can do this if you are just tweeting about link, tweeting about applications. You can add an affiliate link to them. Or if you write about them like Jason or if you have show notes like we do, you can add a tag to a link that you put in about uh, an iOS app or an app that's on any of Apple's app stores or basically any of their products on any of their stores, including the iTunes store. And what happens if somebody follows that link and they buy the product? You get a cut of the purchase price from Apple's end. So they give you part of their cut. It used to be 7% of the cut of the purchase price, right? So they give you 7% back. So that's great. Apple announced a couple of days ago that on May the 1st, which is basically a week away, they're going to be changing the affiliate program and they're going to be cutting the percentage that an affiliate linker gets from the purchase price from 7% to 2.5%. Um, this is pretty big news for people, especially in the world of writing about apps on the web. Yeah, it's uh, writing writing about apps, and I would say also um, people who built services. And I'm thinking of like Arnold Kim, who uh, built App Shopper and Touch Arcade, building mm-hmm. sites that include like databases and things. And their their business model they have ads, but I think, but their business model is fed in large part by affiliate revenue. You buy an app based on a link that they included they get a cut that comes out of apple's percentage um and likewise with uh, i mean this is common like wirecutter does this with amazon primarily where they get a they get a percentage of amazon's sales uh for all the referral traffic and the deal there is basically like we are we are driving sales to your site and you give us a kickback but in this case it's a blanket deal and they've changed the terms so okay. and with with very little warning so you know i understand why apple might do it in the sense that it's money that they put back in their pocket and they they must figure that the people who are sending them traffic don't probably don't deserve that much money they don't need it if they, if it, if the traffic drops off drops off a little bit it will still be worth it for them to reclaim that money um, and possibly that they'll still keep doing it even at the lower percentage. So why not lower it? Um, but it's really tough for 
everybody else, right? Like app developers may suffer because their apps may not necessarily be as visible in all of these places outside of the app store that currently highlight them. Like if you imagine if Federico at Mac Story says, he's not going to do this because this is like his favorite thing, but say we're going to cut back on our app coverage because we can't make money at it anymore. We have to shift to cover more hardware products because the Amazon deal is better. Then those app developers who would have gotten featured on Mac Stories just won't. And of course, for people like Federico or Arnold Kim um, or John Voorhees, who builds an app that builds affiliate links, right? Um, It's going to hurt them. I feel like the only company that doesn't get hurt here is Apple because Apple's just walking away with more cash. I don't understand why really they've done it. Like, I mean, I was, you mentioned some of the people there. Like I pulled in some interesting quotes that I saw. Um, you know, so Rene Imore saying that, you know, it's more than a 50% cut in revenue for sites or developers that have successful affiliate initiatives. Um, and he said, and as he mentioned, especially those trying to reduce ads on their site, um, and something I saw from Federico, you know, I mentioned at the start that the cut was on Apple's part. You know, the, the developers don't make any more money by this change. That Apple is just reducing their cut. And it does feel like there are going to be a bunch of people that are going to feel an effect from this. And it did make me think as well, you know, things like... Seems like the, the the business of writing about these types of things online is getting harder and harder. Like the deck shut down yep. recently. Um, and this is another thing. Like if you were thinking like, okay, maybe advertising isn't doing that well anymore, but at least people are buying the apps from my codes and that makes me a few hundred dollars a month, a few thousand dollars a month or whatever it might be, depending on the size of your uh, publication. I mean, this is just making it harder and harder. Like it's a huge amount of money to change in an incredibly short timescale. Yeah, uh, I again, I'm going to come back to and again, I'm not saying that I'm advocating this, but I'm trying to understand what Apple is doing here. Yeah, I feel like somebody at Apple looked at this and said, why are we giving them this big percentage? One, they're probably going to do it anyway. And even if they don't, do we really think that this drives enough traffic? And they've got the stats like, what does this drive? Is it really worth giving people this money? Um, Are they going to stop? What if they do? Do we care? And basically walk away and my guess is say they're not going to stop and we get the money back. So let's do it. But it it comes from a position of confidence. Like we don't need them. We don't need to give them this amount of money. And this is a trend, right? Like Amazon hasn't cut their fees at the base rate, but Amazon recently cut their fees at, at the higher volumes. It used to be that, that, you know, higher volumes would get higher percentages. And I believe that they've knocked that out, which has hurt people who rely on Amazon fees too, is my understanding. It's tough because the idea here is there's a symbiotic relationship that Amazon or Apple is getting their stuff out of their own, you know, silo and into the wider internet, which is good to get those products in front of people who might not come into their little silos. Um, And in exchange for motivating people to, to make that effort, people get a kickback if if there are sales and people make a living doing that i mean that's it's a um i have both affiliate things for six colors it i wouldn't say i make a living at it it's i get some nice i wouldn't even say nice i get some money from it it's nothing huge it will not make or break me for it to disappear i'm fortunate in that way so i kind of look at this more as a an observer. I, I kind of don't care what happens. If my affiliate revenue just vanished tomorrow. It's a minor frustration for you, right? Like it's I wouldn't know. even say I'm frustrated. I, I put it I put the stuff there because it seems like a good practice to do that. Like if if somebody's gonna buy a USB, you know, podcasting microphone from my article, then um 
and I can I can get money back for that, and it's a product that I recommend. Why yeah, not? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but it's not my business model. If I if if I was doing, but for some sites it is. Like for some sites, writing about one reason why you write about apps is for the is for the affiliate um, kickback. Yep. Why why you write about hardware stuff is for the affiliate kickback, and that like helps you do your job. And it's not. I don't think it's sleazy if you're writing about products intentionally with good content and the links that you would put in there anyway have affiliate links. There are also sites that have built up you know whole databases like Touch Arcade and 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 App Shopper. And the whole point there is we built a database. It's all affiliate affiliated. We added on top of it, but that's how, this is how we survive. Um, I don't know. It's a uh, it's an interesting calculation that Apple made, and uh, it has it has fallout for everybody except probably Apple. There's always a why, and there has to be a why. Yeah. And one why that I've heard people considering is that could this be Apple starting to put the wheels in motion for a potential reduction to their developer cut overall? Maybe taking the thirty percent cut down to twenty. Or 15 or something like that. What do you think about that potential option here or a potential reason for why this might be occurring? It's possible. I mean, it's also possible that this is a counterbalancing of their cut on the subscription revenue that they've already done. Yeah. Um, the question would be, why would Apple do the the reduction in their App Store cut? What would be the motivation there? Are they concerned about App Store economics and that think that taking 20% instead of 30% might bolster app development? I'm skeptical that they would think that. Why? Well, I mean, if you're... I mean, it would, right? Like, it would be a good sign. Well, first off, if you're Apple, you're riding high. Do you really Do you really think... I mean, maybe you could argue that you don't need to take that money from the, from the developers. It's gone so well that you don't need to give it back to them. Do you really think, though, that the App Store, any economic problems people have developing apps in the App Store will be cured by taking a little bit less of a cut? Is that really the problem with the App Store? I... I don't think it is. So you you throw a little money back in the pool. I think that would be very generous if Apple did that. Apple doesn't need that money. At the same time, that's services revenue. Apple really wants to say, look at our services revenue. So to cut that number, you're throwing that portion. It's not not true for... None of this is actually true for the other parts of the iTunes store businesses, but it's it's just for, for app referrals. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think they're motivated to keep it. Um, and in fact, you could argue that this is all just to bolster services revenue by cutting those kickbacks. I, I don't like it because I can see people being affected by it, right? That's, that's the truth of it, right? Is that this may be something that makes sense from an Apple perspective, but, w- but like any business decision like this, who gets hurt? Like the, the decider is probably not the one that's going to get hurt. And, and, but everybody else who's come to rely on it, they're going to get hurt. So we may understand reasons or can guess some reasons, but we know the people who will be impacted. And in the long run, you could really argue like Apple is making a calculation. They could be wrong, right? They could they could be calculating that it doesn't matter. But if you demotivate people to link to the App Store, then... You know, maybe that does have a long-term effect. Maybe that does hurt. And this is my feeling. It's like, maybe that hurts third-party developers. Not Apple per se, but it hurts third-party developers to not have as much of a presence on the wider internet. Yeah, like... Or maybe not. The the fact that the affiliate program exists is a thing that shows that it works. This program exists because this is a thing that you do, right? 
this 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 program exists because the fact that this program exists increases the amount of people that will link to the app store. Yeah. Not having those or having people go away, that's not a good thing for the developer at the other end. Like this is a funnel. Demotivates people to write about the app store, demotivates people to build sites that whose purpose is to drive people to the app store. And Apple has obviously decided that it's not as important as it was to do those things. <laughs> this yeah. is this is one of those things, one of the many, many, many times where Apple's desire for secrecy is frustrating when really I don't know if they need to be. You just tell us why you're doing it. Like, this isn't because, oh, because of the new iPhone, right? Like, <laughs> it's nothing to do with that, right? And And, and it would be just... It would be interesting to see why they're doing it. If it plays into something else, I wish they would do them all at the same time, right? Like if this is because of the uh, a potential that they're going to cut, let's just imagine that they're going to cut this down, right? They're going to cut this, sorry, the developer cut down. Then it'd be great to say, look, we're doing this, and we're also doing this at the same time. Because otherwise, all it is is it does that thing that we hate to think about where Apple's this big company that likes to make a lot of money. Uh, where it could just be that they want to increase the services revenue by half a percent. And this is a way to do that. Yep. Self-driving cars is another thing. So there's been a couple of stories in the past week which categorically say that Apple is still working on a car project. Like there's no way to avoid it anymore because it's some of the things that you have to do. So the California DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, has granted Apple clearance for trials of autonomous driving technology on public roads. These tests will begin with new software being used inside of existing vehicles. Apple's test cars will have a person behind the wheel to monitor the testing at all times. And the California permit covers three 2015 Lexus RX 450H SUVs and six particular drivers, the DMV said. This is one of those things where this isn't a rumor, this isn't a leak. This is like this is like in black and white on the Department yep. of Motor Vehicles website. It is like a permit. This is this is very reminiscent of me to FCC stuff, right? Exactly. Things get leaked or used to get leaked from the FCC um, because there's just legal things you have to go through. Well, they're not even leaked. They're like public things yeah. you need yeah. to file, mm-hmm. and so Apple. You know, Apple at a certain point can't be coy, really, can't stonewall and deny everything. They cannot talk about it, sure, but like this is not a maybe this doesn't matter. But for those who would say, well, it's just a rumor, the rumor, the so called Project Titan, the rumor of the Apple car, all of those things, right? Well, we can say for sure. Apple is it is testing autonomous vehicle technology in California or has the intention of testing autonomous vehicle technology period because they filed the paperwork it's done it's that's a fact um, for those who didn't necessarily believe what they were reading those stories were accurate at least to a certain degree because this is uh this is real and we don't know anything about the details in terms of what um you know what uh what they're doing what their strategy is what mm-hmm. the technology is that they're testing we don't know any of that but we do know that it's really going to happen or at least apple plans on it happening enough to have applied so business insider then obtained some of apple's documentation for this via a public records request 
It's brilliant. It's just hilarious to me that this the way this this information is getting out. So they got some documentation that Apple, I think, had given to the DMV to detail what they were going to be doing and how they were going to be training people. So these documents show off internal testing and training documentation, right? Is guides that Apple will put together for their people that are going to be working on this project. Um, the system itself is currently called the Apple Automation System. So I guess workflows work in this. Uh, weirdly, they detail that the cars that will be used for this feature, the, what they're doing, are going to be uh, having Logitech gaming steering wheels and pedals put inside of them to simulate the feeling of driving when the person has to take control. So these cars are pretty heavily modified to the point where they're putting gaming hardware inside of them. Uh, so this isn't a rumor anymore. Apple is working on a self-driving car project. Like, there's this isn't a leak from Mark Gurman anymore. Like, this is categorical. Whether this is ever something that meets the market, we're not sure. You never, you know, we're not going to know that until it either does or just we never hear about it again. But this is a clear sign that Apple is doing something in this space. So let's assume that they're not building a car, right? Which is what we've heard, that they were building a car, but now they're not building a car. Why would Apple be building self-driving car technology? Like, what is the point of this? Like, why would a car company want Apple's technology? Why did Apple feel the desire to create this technology? And like, why would a consumer choose a car that has Apple's self-driving car technology over Volvo's? Good questions, Mike. <laughs> and this is all I have, right? It's like there are, I don't think there are any answers. I, yeah, I don't have any answers. I, I was thinking, like, well, do, how do I answer this? And the answer is, I don't have the answers. These are all things we've talked about before, like you said, that are that are out there. Which is, what is Apple doing here? And I keep coming back. My my touchstone in all of this is, you're Apple. You've got lots and lots of money. You know, you know, you know, you're great at some things in technology. You are making bets for the future, just like Google is, just like everybody should be who's got lots and lots of cash and is a tech company because you know otherwise if you stay still, you will be replaced and you make some bets. And you look at the car industry and you say this is this is ripe for change on so many different levels. The electric the electrification of the of the fleet is going to happen. The uh, you know introduction of self driving technology, or at least intelligent assist technology, is going to happen. To what degree is debatable. So why not place a bet there? That's stuff we know. Um, so that's that's great. Like I understand why they're exploring this. The next step is the hardest one for both of us to conceive of, and for a lot of people to conceive of. Which is one: Is Apple going to make their own car? which it seems like they were investigating and then they backed off of, although it's unclear whether they backed off on it because they're not or because they wouldn't need to worry about it for so long that there was no point in working on it in the meantime when they weren't sure if they if they were going to go that way. But step two is the really weird one, right? Which is, is Apple going to build car tech that is then, what, licensed by car makers? to use as their onboard systems are they going to be like the android of cars because that's not very apple to be like lots of car makers have the apple car in it that's not very apple that's not like their business model it's not well, like something that CarPlay, they've, they've ever done i mean that is what yeah, but carplay car, is but carplay is an apple carplay is an apple product that you plug into your car but this is like going to have to be a whole built into every car 
thing, which is different. I mean, like, it's more like Apple TV exists, but there don't exist TVs with Apple TV built inside of it, right? TV is a great point here, right? Apple can't get TV companies, cable companies, to put their content on Apple's box. How are they going to get car companies to accept their operating system? The the difference is, in this case, Apple is the content provider. In this case, Apple is the one that says, we've got the tech. Mm. You don't, we're great. You, you car, car company, you stink. You're bad at this. We've used your cars. They're, they're awful. We've got this super sweet thing. Let's make a deal. That's what they can say. And I think that they would, I think that people would be maybe motivated to do that. Although there is going to be a whole not inventor to your thing where it's like, but, but, but we've got a whole team that's been working on self-driving tech for the last 10 years. Um, we're just going to use that. And Apple's going to say it's worse than ours. Just fire those people and buy our system. That's what they're going to say. Um, I, you know, again, I have a hard time picturing that. I have a hard time picturing Apple making their own cars. I, I floated a while ago the scenario that maybe this is something where Apple eventually makes a strate- strategic investment in a car company and they work jointly on a new line of cars that has Apple tech in it, but it's like a joint venture of, you know, uh, of Apple and GM or Apple and Volkswagen or whoever it is, Apple and Nissan make some company, they make a deal. There's a strategic investment. Apple doesn't necessarily buy them out, but they buy a a big percentage that like, we're committed to this. We're going to create a line. That's the best I've come up with yet. And I'm Mm -hmm. not an expert on car stuff. So I, I don't know if that's plausible or not, but, but like that idea of what if we, what if we didn't buy a car company, but we weren't all also like licensing it out to everybody. And then Apple would get a say in what the cars were and they would be viewed as special, um, at least at the start. And then maybe it expands from there. That's the best guess I have. But I mean, I don't know. It's weird, but uh, I understand their impulse to do it and I'm intrigued by it. I just um, am still having a hard time seeing exactly what the end game is. And maybe Apple is too. I mean, maybe that was the whole thing that happened when they, they scaled back Project Titan. Was Apple just saying it's too soon? Like let's let's slow this down. We need to get our tech right. The other stuff can wait, and we'll either do it later or we'll find somebody to do it for us. But that's not our area of expertise, so we're going to leave it for now and figure it out later after we know whether this is a thing or not. And that's you know why they're out there with their uh, with their Lexus SUVs. We have the same questions. We don't have any new answers. No, we have the same predictions. But what we do have now is more fact. And you know what this is also going to do? This is going to create a whole new level of stories on the internet where people take pictures of Apple Maps mapping vehicles in California and say, is this the self-driving car? Because now we know that they're going to be able to be on public roads, which means that everybody's going to freak out and be like, oh, they're on public roads. And we know what the cars are. And we do know, yeah, only if you see a 2015 Lexus RX 450H SUV. You got to look at Might steering wheel, Logitech steering wheel. That's it, how you it'll know. probably have it'll probably have like a huge Apple logo on the side, right? Like Apple on one side and on the other side, it'll say "Warning: Apple self-driving car." Right? Totally. It probably will, <laughs> you know, or at least have something, right? Like I, I can't imagine. I mean, I haven't looked into it, but I can't imagine these cars just drive around unmarked. That would be no. I think they do. Oh, really? <laughs> I think oh, they do. Well. I guess that's probably for the best, actually, right? So people don't freak out around them when maybe they shouldn't have to. Nothing makes me more nervous than when I'm behind a car on the freeway that says has a student driver sign in it. Mm. That scares me. 
So maybe you don't want robot robot student. Maybe not. Today's show is brought to you by Encapsula, the multifunction content delivery network that boosts the performance of your website, protects it from denial of service attacks, and secures it from bad guys whilst ensuring high availability. Over 100,000 organizations trust Encapsula every single day, from huge Fortune 500 companies to one-person websites. It doesn't matter who you are, they can help protect you. They have all the resources you're ever going to need to help your website load quickly, even if something bad is going on behind the scenes. And with their 24-7 operations team, you have that additional help there if you ever need it. You get personal account management and the best service level agreement in the business. Look, you don't have to worry. Encapsula have got this. Put simply, you're going to be well protected and your site will be lightning fast. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free. Just go to encapsula.com slash upgrade. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A.com slash upgrade. This is where you can find out more about Encapsula's service and claim your free month. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their support of this show and Relay FM. Time for some Ask Upgrade. <laughs> Nate asked, thank you. Do you think... Oh, wow, there it goes. Do you think oh, the one laser's laser, misfired. One laser, big effect today. Do you think that iOS 11 will introduce the option to make App Store and iTunes purchases via Apple Pay? I don't know what made me think of this recently. I think... Oh, you know what it was? I lost my cards. I lost all my cards. And mm-hmm. I had to go... I got that annoying prompt in iTunes where it was saying to me, hey, you need to update your purchasing information. And I went there, and I was surprised by the fact that I couldn't just choose Apple Pay. Like, I had to enter in my card information again. Why can't it just use Apple Pay? I have a theory, which is that if Apple has your credit card information direct and charges you direct, that it's better, like, a better price for them. Like, Mm. maybe the transaction fee is lower. Yeah. I'm not sure that's actually true. It's also possible that it's just a complicated bit of infrastructure and they don't want to deal with it, um, with changing it. Like it's all working okay and it's going to be a lot of work to do it or or it's, or they're working on it and it's taking time. I agree with you. It would be way more convenient to have all of Apple stuff be in Apple Pay, but that does not seem to have happened. Also, uh, can you do Apple Pay with subscriptions? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, because basically the way it works now is is you put it, the card on file and then when you buy something, it's just like, yes, yes, buy it in Apple's UI instead of bringing up an Apple Pay sheet where you have to pick a credit card and buy it. So I think there's some simplicity to the idea of keeping it on file yeah. um, at Apple. So I'm sure that I'm sure they've got a reason. Um, as a user, it is annoying, right? I just had that. I had to change my credit card. Oh, on I think Apple's you can. Site. Because Memberful has Apple Pay, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. So you can do subscriptions via Apple Pay. You can. So I don't know. My guess is that it's it's either a technical issue or um, or it's a money issue. That like So, right? So either it's hard to do and they may not have prioritized it or they're working on it. Or they ran the numbers and said, oh, if we do Apple Pay for our own stuff, we'll lose millions of dollars. And they're like, then let's not do that. Brent asked... How does Jason decide what articles to write for Six Colors versus Macworld or other places? Because you write all over the web, don't you? Yeah. 
Well, not all over. I write weekly at Macworld and sort of monthly at iMore. Where were you writing before? PC Win Supersite? Oh, Win, Win Supersite, yeah. yeah. That's right. They wanted somebody to explain Apple to uh, PC guys. <laughs> what were the comments like on those articles, Jason? Why? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. They, they, it, was, it was nice of them to have me, and they paid me, and that was great. Um, and I waited for them to not pay me anymore. Because <laughs> um, as a freelancer, hey, it's great when they pay you for articles. Um for Macworld, I have a, I have something in mind for the kind of thing I write for Macworld, I, and I, I don't know how to define it. There's a certain kind of article. Some of it is length. Some of it is like, ideally, it's 800 to 1,000 words kind of article, because that feels like that's the column length for Macworld. That was always my column length at Macworld back in the day when I was writing a monthly column. Um, and so I think about that length, and I think about like, story topic like there's certain stories that i'd be like i'm not going to write that for macworld that's silly um i want the macworld piece to be like a certain kind of piece and of a certain length and so i collect story ideas in my little reminders list of story ideas and i don't sometimes i'll put like macworld question mark like maybe this sounds like a macworld piece uh, and other times i'll sit down on like tuesday afternoon and i'll look at it and i'll be like any of these ideas macworld you know macworld ideas could i do this as the macworld column and sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no and i sit there and rack my brain to come up with what my story idea is so there is a length and a sort of topic that i do there are some pieces i write for six colors that could be macworld pieces and i just decide now nah, i'm gonna write that for six colors instead um because, you know, I also need to write things for six colors. For iMore, generally, it's a little different in that I talk to Serenity and I say, do you have any ideas, any prompts you want to give me? And um, and she will usually come back with something. And that's fun because that is um, – and then I will try to figure out what spin I could put on that to to get something out of it. So it's a little – yeah, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I feel like the Macworld pieces have a different tone of voice. Like they, yeah, they I feel mean, different to the six color stuff. They are almost always written specifically with the Macworld in mind. Not all, not always, but almost always. Every now and then, I will write something for intending it to be for six colors, and I will get to the end and think, "Oh, this is this has turned into a Macworld piece. I'm just going to send this to Susie at Macworld." But that that only happens like a couple of times a year. Most of the times I'm writing it for Macworld, um, you know, and thinking of that audience and thinking of the, the context of the, you know, of a Jason Snell once a week column. And, you know, it's so it's slightly different. Steve asked, if we ever get a new 4K Apple TV, do you think that Apple will give a multiple Bluetooth head co- headphone connection option? So I don't know if I see this feature specifically happening. Or that Apple would even really promote it if they did, because it seems like a super niche thing, right? Multiple people can connect Bluetooth headphones to the Apple TV and listen together. I can understand many situations in which this would be useful for people. I think of young parents, right? Like <laughs> the baby sleeping. <laughs> Let's use headphones. Right? Like I can see these. Makes sense. But I just don't know if I see this feature. However, what I will say is I am very impressed. I was very impressed to learn about the ability to Bluetooth 5.0. Have you seen anything about Bluetooth 5.0 at all, Jason? I haven't. So MKBHD put together a video about this because the Galaxy S8, which we were talking about earlier, has Bluetooth 5.0 built into it. And one of the things, as well as like better data transfer, faster speeds, much improved range, this really is vastly better, one of the things you can do with Bluetooth 5 is connect two 
audio devices at the same time from one phone. So, and, and MKBHD shows this, he connects two Bluetooth speakers to the S8, and they're both playing the same thing at once. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So, like you're saying that, who needs Sonos, right? Like, you can have multiple speakers in your home playing the same audio source. Well, yeah. I, it, I'm gonna, know, he simplifies it, right? Like, he, I, I am going to express uh, skepticism that you could keep those things in sync over the long run. It's well, better for headphones, right? Because they don't need to be exactly in sync. Because your but your brain beyond a certain bit of out of sync, everything sounds weird. Your brain mm-hmm. tries to put push them together, and then at some point it gives up and says, "Nope, I can't do it anymore." So I, I'm and skeptical he does of say that. There is a slight like there is there is a slight difference between them at mm-hmm. times, and he says there are things you can do to make it better. But it is cool to see this technology starting, yeah. right? Of course, this is the first time that this has been available. And, you know, they Apple did the engineering for the AirPods that even though they're not connected to each other except wirelessly, they uh, they are in sync. Yep. So maybe Bluetooth 5 would make that even better. I mean, I maybe. have weird things. Sometimes, like, if I just turn my head quickly, like, the AirPods get really upset and, like, they, like, I lose it for just a millisecond. It's very strange. That, yes. that's, the, that's the one where I seem to have it the most. It's like, ah, don't do that. <laughs> and uh-huh. I always find that really funny. You know, my AirPods like, no, don't move too fast. I did have a thing um, on the airplane. Uh, I didn't want to fall asleep with my AirPods in and was getting my uh, my AirPods, my cable ones with the lightning thing. I was changing to those when I was sleepy because if I fall asleep and like my head hits the seat, the AirPods coming out, AirPods coming out and it's gone forever. I've lost it in the airplane seat. And that was kind of a funny thing on my travels. Don't fall asleep with the AirPods in. You, you may lose them. Mm. S. Chan asked, would you consider living overseas, both of us, because we are independent workers? Is that something we would ever consider, living overseas? It would be easier to do, right? Like, we don't have an office that we have to go to. We work remotely with people. Like, we could live overseas, I guess. Yeah, but would you? Maybe. I mean, it depends. Like, I had my dreams, you know, of moving to America. Who knows, though? Like political climates are very strange these days <laughs> yes all over so uh, 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 you know maybe if everything settles down again at some point then then maybe uh but right now no i wouldn't however uh there are times this year like i actually think i'm gonna be in the u.s in multiple different cities for the entire month of august and i will effectively be living overseas during that time i'm, I'm not going to be taking a month off work um, i'm going to be working so that's going to be a, an interesting experience I, uh, yeah, I mean, I would consider it, but, uh, you know, all the usual. It's easier, right? Like, it's easier, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we would do it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly, because, okay, we don't, we're independent workers, but we all, you know, we have family, Mm -hmm. right? Like, if I moved to Ireland, right, first off, let's, let's go over this. You can't just move to another country and work. No. They have to let you in and approve you, and you have to fill out paperwork and things like that it's a complicated process and they may not and these days it's more complicated they may not let you in they may not may not want you to be there but if i were to go there then what would happen like okay i'd pull my kids out of school um my daughter's about to go to college is she going to go to college back in the u.s and now she's a very long plane ride away Um, my son is going to have to go to a, a, a different school it also means that i'm now um like a 12 hour flight away from my mother who is in her late seventies. Um, 
my, you know, we're away from my wife's parents. Um, there's so much like you, it's very hard to do that, I guess is what I'm saying. And so while it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, I think it's unlikely. Uh, and I happen to live in a gigantic country too. So like, I, I probably wouldn't move to Ohio either. Right. Because that would put me far away from my mom and from my wife's parents and, and and that would be a long way to go too, even though it's in the same country. So I do think about when my kids are out of uh, out of the house, mm-hmm. if I might move somewhere else in the U.S. It's possible, but it's probably a lot less likely that I would move overseas, just because it would be very from San Francisco, very 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 far away from everybody in my family, and that is just very complicated. I have friends who are English who keep having to fly back because of horrible things happening medically to their parents, and it's it's rough to you know to drop everything and fly 10 hours, 12 hours to get to a sick parent. Gary asks, are there any local or UK focused apps like Yelp or Google Maps that you recommend for people traveling to London? So one, uh, I recommend Google Maps and Yelp. Um, Yelp and Google Maps are not US only. I mean, you can get all of the recommendations you would get in the US for those here. All of the stuff is in there. You can get that. Um, I also would recommend Foursquare, especially for London. It's very good. Foursquare ratings are very good in London. Recommendations are very good in London. We use it all the time. So you can use the ones that you're used to using. London is a major city enough that it will have as good information as you might get in somewhere like New York or San Francisco in all these all these applications. So uh, Google Maps, Yelp, and Foursquare are great for, for London recommendations. And Seth asked today, why can't I buy a Neon Nintendo Switch in any retail store or Amazon? I've been looking regularly. Am I missing something? In a nutshell, um, Nintendo is selling more than they expected that they were going to sell. That's basically it. Um, And you can see this in the fact that they have said that they have changed their production amounts that they're making in their first year. Uh, the, The Switch has been more popular than Nintendo expected. It's like any big product, right? When a new iPhone comes out, you either get it immediately or you wait a while because companies forecast and things happen and then maybe you can't get it. Uh, I recommend there is a, a link I'll put in the show notes. I stock now. I heard about this in ATP and I've recommended it to some friends. I know some people that have been able to use this service um, as a way to see. I think this is in the US or uh, maybe outside of the US as well. Uh, yeah, I can actually see they they have UK information on here too. It can show you stock, current stock information is given to you, given to them by retail outlets as to where stock is. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean there is one there. I had a friend who looked at it. The information was there. It said that they had units. They went to the store and they were like, "Yeah, we had them this Lies. morning." Right? Like it's not it's not live data. It yeah, was a lot data of stores update right at the at end of the day. Point exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, buyer beware, but uh, it is possible. And look, just quite frankly, it's a very popular system right now. It's, it's a popular piece of technology and uh, yeah. you're not missing anything. You missed the uh, pre-order window. That's what you missed, Seth. I've gonna, I'm going to wind us back for a moment for a little uh, a real-time follow-up. To, uh, trademark John Syracuse. I think, I think um, that's Casey. I think Casey came up is that with a real-time follow-up. Yeah. All right. Okay. Casey Liss, this one's for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our chat room... Uh, we we uh, we need to define before we get an avalanche of email overseas 
Right. Okay. Because it's very important that I said from San Francisco, it's hard to think of any place that's overseas that isn't far away. And and somebody in the chat room, David Schaub in the tra- chat room said, well, what about Vancouver? And it's like overseas to me implies traveling overseas to get someplace else. I yeah. can drive to Vancouver. So while that would be moving to a different country um, and Vancouver is lovely, uh, I would just be able to drive there. Mexico, I can drive there. I guess technically I could drive to all of the Americas, although I probably wouldn't want to. I mean, technically um, you can drive anywhere, right? But that's like, a, you might also be getting on a boat. <laughs> well, then, then I'm not driving though, then I'm on a boat. Boat mm-hmm. or not, that's a new debating podcast that we can have. So, uh, so, but Hawaii would be overseas. I could live in Hawaii maybe, but again, then I would be five, six hours from all of my family and that would be hard. So anyway, that's overseas as a way to refer to international travel or living is an interesting term. Um, but since you live on an island and I live in America, it, it it's not a bad term to use for us, but you know, it's, it's a weird term to use because it may not mean what you think it means. That's all. All right. So we have, uh, we have more today. We have Mike of the movies. We do We're talking about Blade Runner. But before we do, let's thank our final sponsor for this week's show, and that's FreshBooks. Look, maybe you're racing to get all those projects wrapped up before the week is done. You're prepping for a meeting that you have later on in the afternoon, tackling mountains of paperwork, and also just trying to get paid. This is the challenge of being a freelancer. Our friends at FreshBooks believe that the rewards are worth it, and they build tools to make it easier for people that want to live this type of life. FreshBooks has been designed from the ground up to work the way that you do. You'll be more productive and more organized whilst also being paid more quickly. FreshBooks has been built to meet the challenges of people that work online. So there are opportunities now in the working world that exist that never existed before. Me and Jason have jobs that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago because the types of things that we do online, just you couldn't make money from them, but you can now. And I use FreshBooks. We use FreshBooks at Relay FM as the way that we get money from the companies that we work with. All of our invoices are sent there. We are swiftly approaching our 1,000th invoice with FreshBooks. We use them every week, every couple of days. Either me or Stephen is logging into FreshBooks and dealing with everything that we need to deal with. We can send all of our invoices out. We can see when somebody's looked at them. We can make changes to them. We can, if we need to, we can send reminders. We can do everything. We get our payments come through there. We can integrate with other payment services as well. And FreshBooks customers get paid up to four days faster on average because it is so easy to have an invoice paid. It arrives in somebody's inbox. They can open it and they can click a link right there to pay immediately. And we have a bunch of clients that companies that we work with that I send out an invoice and I get paid straight away. And it's because we're sending them via FreshBooks. If I emailed them, it may take them that little bit longer, right? They print it off, they put it in an in-tray and it just sits there. But with FreshBooks, it gives them the ability to pay it straight away. It's one of the reasons that I love it. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to listeners of this show. If you invoice anybody, please just go and try this out. I am very confident you will be extremely happy with what you find. Go to freshbooks.com slash upgrade and enter upgrade in the how you heard about us section so they will know that they came to that you came to them from this show. So that's freshbooks.com slash upgrade. You can find out more and sign up for a 30-day unrestricted free trial. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for supporting this show and Relay FM. All right, so it is Mike at the movies time. And today we are talking about Blade Runner. Now, Blade Runner. Now, 
This Mike at the Movies is unique for a bunch of different ways. Okay. Number one, you didn't want to do this one. <laughs> okay. It's fine. It's fine. I thought it was a it was a weird choice, but it's a very famous movie. Yep. Uh, by all rights, we should probably have done Aliens since we did Alien. Uh, yeah. But I needed I needed a break from the scariness, and I know many people told me that Aliens is very different, but I just needed a not a movie that wasn't the Alien movie. Uh, so that's number one. That's 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 part number one. Uh, number two is I've never had a movie in Mike at the Movies where multiple people felt the need to warn me about the movie in certain ways. Like, people thinking that I wasn't going to like it and that huh. they would maybe trying to talk me out of it um, and saying that, oh, no, don't watch this version, watch that version, watch this version type thing. So people were tweeting at me like this. John Syracuse didn't want me to watch it. Um, I saw him because he was in London. Uh, we had dinner, which was fantastic, and uh, he told me he didn't want me to watch the movie because <laughs> he didn't think huh. I would like it, and he loves it. Mm. And I was very dead set on wanting to watch just the regular edition of the movie, um, the one with the Harrison Ford voiceover stuff and everything. I, I wanted to watch just the standard version of this movie. I didn't want to direct his cut or anything like that. I wanted to watch that movie, like the original movie, right? Because it was this was the one that, for whatever reason, was put out. This is the one that people latched on to. I wanted to watch it. So that was what we chose. It's also unique because this is the first movie that I, for Mike at the Movies that I have watched on a plane and in more than one <laughs> sitting. Okay. Because I misjudged when I started watching the movie and we had to land and then I had to pick it up on the plane ride home. Ah, uh, I see. So this is unique for many ways. So I will do in my standard format that I have created for myself. Would you like to know what I thought about this movie before I watched it? Yes, I would. So I believed that uh, Blade Runner was a film noir-style detective story, which I guess I was kind of right about. I mean, it's kind of. I think that's kind of where they went with it, right? Like it's not absolutely. It's not black and white, but it's a lot of those tropes, like. They may as well have said at one point she had legs from here to there. It was kind of that style, right? You know, that you see oh, in yeah. like Who Framed Roger Rabbit or whatever. Uh, and uh, I knew that it was a... It's, cult classic is maybe the wrong term because it is a, it was a popular movie, right? But like it has gained this kind of following to it. Um, I also know that it's being remade. Or like there's a there's more of the story. Yeah, there is a sequel being made, a, a uh, much much later sequel that mm-hmm. is really being released in October. But yes, this is a well known, well thought of historic film, and I would say influential film in many ways. The look of this film has been referenced and paid homage to many 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 times it is that's one of the important things about it and its connection to alien is it's the same director this is ridley scott so it does have a connection to alien it is kind of a logical follow-on in in a way whereas uh aliens would have been for a different reason also i have to ask you which version did you watch did you watch the version with the with the um narration yeah okay it was what itunes gave me so I, I just got the, the, what was, I believe, to be the standard edition on iTunes. Is that not it, then? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, there are multiple editions. I know. Of Blade I, I Runner. didn't get the final cut. I I got the 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 regu- what looked like to me to be the regular edition of the movie. People okay. were telling me to watch the final cut, but I decided not to. I wanted to get what I believed would be the 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 most original yeah, this version. Is, this is, yeah. So you watched the 1982 theatrical release, which yes. is the one with the with the lots and lots of Harrison Ford narration. And my understanding, just from what I've picked up, was this narration was added in later because people couldn't work out what was going on, right? Is yeah, that that's. True? I th- I think that I think that's right. I don't know. I'm not a, a Blade Runner historian, but that's that's my understanding is that it was it was uh, the narration was put in to make to explain the movie. And I think it, it adds was needed. To the, I mean, <laughs> it it adds to the the, the yeah. noir feel mm-hmm. of it. I I feel like, and it's a. I think it's. Uh, I think Ford's good. There there is people are split about whether the. Um, the no narration versions are are better. I don't. I, I mean, and you might talk to somebody who's like, "Oh, it's that's the real one." But there are other people who disagree. I think it's telling that both versions are available, right? Because they are yeah. they are very different in a lot of ways. But you you got to see the one that was in theaters. So, like, what I'll say is, like, you know, I haven't seen the other versions of the movie, however many there might be. But without the narration in the movie that I watched, I I don't think I would have known what was going on. Like, uh, so did you know um, going in? Did you know that this is about androids? Did yeah. you know that the, there that there's like? A, did you know about like the cityscape stuff? Like that it looked like dark and and lots of lots of uh, screens on buildings and stuff. Yeah, did you just have any? just having been exposed to pop culture, you know, I was I was familiar with the term replicant, but I wasn't completely sure what that was in reference to whether it was clones or robots or aliens right but i knew that was a thing um and i've seen i've seen the the look of this movie all over the place right like the big screens because i've seen like pictures of like tokyo now and people saying like look it is blade runner you know like stuff like that like i've seen that kind of thing um so i was familiar with some of the, the the base ideas as to what this movie was putting out there, you know? And so let me tell you what I thought of this movie. It is one of the most beautiful films I have ever seen. I was so taken aback and drawn in by the look of this film. Like, the majority of my notes are just about, wow, this set is beautiful, and wow, that set is beautiful. Like, I was completely sold on the look of this movie. Some of it is too dark, right? Just like the way that the movie's lit was a bit dark for me. Um, but the, the the set design and the world design is incredible, and I'm kind of so surprised that it's taken this long for any continuation of this world, right? That it's taken this long for either a sequel or a prequel or whatever, because this world is so intriguing and well thought out and fleshed out and there's like this whole lore and language to it let alone just the way it looks it's it's surprising to me that more hasn't been done in the blade runner universe before now honestly yeah it's uh you know it was viewed and it's based on a on a a story by philip k dick um the science fiction writer uh maybe there was a feeling like it's a one-off uh, the franchising of everything in Hollywood uh, has has really picked up lately. So now we're getting the sequel right all these years later, which is weird, but that's where we are. So and at the time, you know, at the time, I think it 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 was not universally hailed or anything like that, and it was not a huge hit. It really did become kind of appreciated later, became a cult classic. 
was put on the National Film Registry as a historic film. I mean, it got there, but mm-hmm. it took it took some it took some time. And so, uh, on on that level, maybe I'm not surprised that it took them that long to to revisit it. They did they did, however, Ridley Scott did revisit the film a couple of times yeah. with these alternate versions of it. I think I like this movie more than you do. Okay. That's probably not hard. <laughs> yeah. Because I I don't I'm 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 I don't feel like I dislike the movie. Um, I don't dislike I don't dislike this movie. I I um I have I have a bunch of issues with it and I okay. don't love it. Like I don't I don't feel a great affection for it. I yep. think it's it 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 looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I think the storytelling is a mess. Um, I think it's got some really memorable scenes. Uh, and, and my big thing is that although the soundtrack, like the score is beautiful, it's Evangelis who did Chariots of Fire as well, did this score and it's fascinating and weird and electronic and all that, but it's also sleepy and, yeah. and, and the movie is slow. And I, I've told the story before, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. My wife, I've tried to get my wife to watch this movie three times and all three times she fell asleep. Yep fell asleep all three times and she does not fall asleep while watching movies all three times because the music lulls you and nothing is really happening and the scary thing is you get lulled and lulled and lulled and then daryl hannah screams and does a bunch of cartwheels and tries to kill somebody and you're like and now you're awake so i have yeah i have some issues with this movie it's not a movie that i enjoy although it's a movie that i can appreciate for what it is I hey, think, oh, and I should say that that scene with that scene with Rutger Hauer, where he die, where he's he's like, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. I've seen ships off the Tannhauser Gate and uh, uh-huh. uh, or ships on fire on the arm of Orion and all of that. Time to die. That scene, all, all these things will be lost like tears and rain. That 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 monologue is amazing, and I love it. And I also make jokes about it all the time because it is so uh, impressive. There are some amazing things in this movie, and yep. you know, you could argue that. That maybe sometimes that that's okay. That maybe a movie is memorable and important, even if it doesn't really hold together as a whole, because the stuff, the bits that are in it, there's so many of them that are things you can appreciate. Um, so that's that's sort of my take. Is I'm kind of ambivalent about the movie as a whole, but I have to appreciate the artistry and a lot of the things that are in it are amazing. And Harrison Ford, you know, I, I think. I uh, yeah. What a, what a career that guy had in the early in the late seventies, yeah. early eighties. Because this is right. You know, you got Indiana Jones, Han Solo. You put this in there. It's like this Deckard performance where he's this noir detective in this future world and all that. And he really, you know, it's it's another one of those fascinating kind of performances. That guy. That guy is great. <laughs> he's, he was like typecast wow. as the best kind of thing. Cool guy. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. What a great thing to be typecast as, right? Like those three roles. It's like we need a cool guy. <laughs> Does anybody know a cool guy? Oh yeah, we'll get Harrison yeah. Ford in to do it. We got a guy. Well, it's the. I look at that and I think that that's the kind of career that that's a Humphrey Bogart kind of career where th- this is a guy. He's a movie star and he can play these parts and people love him. And so like just keep making movies where he's that cool guy. Yeah. Like why would you stop making movies where he's the cool guy? Um, and and yeah, yeah. Absolutely. One of the things I really couldn't understand about this movie is replicants and their relationship to planet Earth. Because if I was following it correctly, replicants are outlawed on planet Earth, but there is a company based on planet Earth that makes them? 
Yeah, I think the idea is that they're they're made to work and they're not supposed to get free and try to live among people. And it's uh, it's not clear to me whether they're not allowed to be on Earth at all. I think that's not true, but that these ones have come back to Earth illegally. Right. Because they want to they want more life. They want to s- extend their lives and they've come back to their creator. I mean, it, it's a classic story in that way it's a it's a frankenstein mm-hmm. kind of story where the the created creature has come back to its creator demanding life or or killing the creator which is totally what happens here so yeah yeah it, I, it was just difficult for me to follow like are they outlawed completely are they like uh, it was it was just a, a, a difficult thing because it's like this whole police force has been created to destroy them but yet the company there is making them like it was just a little bit like i i didn't really feel like i had a full grasp on it right because i like are they only allowed on the other world right like where they're it's like well, right. we destroyed and, planet earth and everybody's being moved off if they can be or they're desired to be right it's kind of what's and, happening in this world and sean but you know sean young is there as rachel and she's a she's a replicant but she's there on earth so it's i think it's i think that the, it's more that these are like rogue replicants that are being right. hunted okay. and that's and that's the that's the story there so yeah, that, that I guess that makes a little bit more sense, right? Like there, there are some that are allowed because like they they reference pleasure models, right? And I think you can kind of you can draw yeah. from that what they're getting at, and you would imagine that they would be allowed on Earth. But these like they called Nexus Six, this is t- t- this type of model. It seems like a warrior, a soldier. Um, that they have these these uh, shortened lifespans, so they'll be less dangerous, I guess. And and I guess they're the ones that they had to hunt down. Also, I didn't get at any point why these police are called blade runners yeah okay i don't know okay great i just it's like this is a really cool phrase but i don't know what it what it means it's what they call them they're called blade runners that's what they're called they run the blades you know yeah what's wrong with you why can't you get this uh future tech future tech is in this future technology Based in seventies thinking, eighties thinking, eighties no, thinking, 80s but yeah, thinking, exactly. Say, also, yeah. yeah, future technology and culture based on eighties thinking. So Which this I love. is in the eighties. In the eighties, there's definitely this feeling like J- uh, Japan and Germany are going to dominate the twenty first century. That was mm-hmm. the meme in the eighties, and so you see here a Los Angeles that is very much sort of modeled on Tokyo and is very Japanese in its style. Yeah, and the the Nexus Six look like germans right the Aryans. Yeah. it's yeah yeah i suppose that's eyes. i suppose that's true too yeah although there are pictures now I, I saw a picture that i think was in beijing somewhere in asia where somebody had a picture that they posted that basically said hey does this look like blade runner because it's today it's a picture i took today in this yeah you know large city in that. asia and there is there is you know it, the the visual style here did they did they help create that did they just correctly intuit it um, you know, there, there, there's a lot here that's influential and interesting and maybe life-imitating art in the end. Um, one of the future tech things that I enjoyed the most was the photo enhancement. You know, it takes the physical picture, puts it in the computer, and is able to enhance it to the point where he can basically see reflections in tiny pieces of mirror, right? And And then he wants a hard copy of it and gets it printed onto a Polaroid. Like, that, yeah. that whole scene is incredible. Like, it starts with a physical picture is enhanced astronomically by this computer, which then gives them a Polaroid at the end. I love stuff like that. It's so funny. And it makes me think, like, 
what are we putting in movies now that dates us? Because all yeah. of this was like, where can we see this technology going into the future? And like, what are we doing now in movies that are based in the future that, that is dating us? I, I like to think about stuff like that because then it was like, this is the, the, the far, as far as we can take this technology, as far as our imaginations can take us. And I think that that's, that stuff's kind of funny. Um, one of the scenes that I really, really disliked um, is at the moment when I think it's Roy, the, the the kind of the replicant dude, is arguing with Tyrell about science. Like they have this really heated debate about the extension of their life. And right. They're debating about like the different scientific methods that should be undertaken to see if their life can be extended. It's completely pointless. Like. They're just it's just science science jargon being thrown at each other for a few minutes that culminates in an incredibly violent murder scene. It's really weird. I did not like that scene. It was very strange. I mean, let alone all the stuff with JF, like those toys that he makes, when he refers to his toys, they're all terrifyingly creepy and it's all kind of wrapped up in these back to back scenes that was uncomfortable. Um and then talking about death scenes, and you mentioned it already when uh Pris like the 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 female yep. strong replicant, all of that scene where like she's screaming and jumping around, and then uh, Decker Harrison Ford shoots her, and she's like screaming and thrashing around on the ground, like it's a bit much. It's a little bit much. There are times in this movie where it just gets pushed a little bit too far, in a lot of ways, and this is one of them. I mean, then then just the whole end scene is a little bit too much for me. Like, I, there's so much that happens in, like, kind of the, the third act of this movie that I'm like, I don't know what's happened. Like, it just goes off the rails. Like, it completely goes off the rails. Like, when, from the point where um, Decker arrives at uh, JF's apartment, which is, I think, the most beautiful set, like, the outside where he's like walking up the stairs. It's like right. just unbelievable. And it shot so well. But from the moment he enters the door, I'm like, I don't know what's going on anymore. Uh, from the moment where she's like screaming and cartwheeling around and then he shoots her and she's like going crazy on the ground to then like Roy, the, 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 the remaining Nexus six. Why is he in his underwear? I don't know why he strips down to his underwear <laughs> to chase Decker. Why is he howling like a wolf? Um, none of it makes any sense. Like, uh, and then he sticks a nail in his through his hand, and I assume it's because he's like he's starting to seize up, right? Like he's starting to die, and I, I assume he does that to make sure he has feeling in his hand left. But that's weird because it's like then there are all these like biblical references, right? Like he puts a nail through his hands. It's kind of strange. And then like, why is he holding a dove? Like all of a sudden he's got a dove in his hand. It doesn't make. Uh, and then like. Decker's fingers gets broken, but he's still climbing up the walls. It's really it gets re- the wheels come off this movie in an almost spectacular way. It's yeah. I mean, again, I I wish I could I could somebody like John Syracuse needs to swoop in and uh, and and explain it mm-hmm. and defend it better I'll than look I forward can. To the follow up, <laughs> yeah, because for me it's like uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, th- these are things you're describing. They're not not my favorite things about this movie. Those are not the things that I that I think of fondly yeah. as as being like, boy, that's a that's a that's a great moment. I do like I do like Roy Batty's last, uh, like I said, his last monologue. But, yeah, that is great. But, 
by the way, the number of people that are maddened by these Mike at the Movies episodes is fascinating to me. Like Anthony Johnston just kind of like lost it about Alien. He was telling me like, what is that? What is going on with Mike? And and it's like, yeah, I know. It's 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 funny. It's because I'm walking something... in here and trashing these '80s movies. That's the problem. Yeah, people don't. That, like it. I think that's it. Well, I think I think not getting it right. Like mm-hmm. where people are like, but you don't understand. It's like part of the experiment with you is seeing these movies you've never seen before. And so to you, you don't have that layer of nostalgia or context to put on these things. You weren't there. That's exactly right. I weren't there. Yeah. You know what I also don't get? I don't know what the moral of this movie is. I don't know what it's trying to tell me. Interesting. I can't work it out. It's, I would say... I would say the themes of this movie, I mean, a lot of it is about trying to understand yourself and that the, and, 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 um, and, and having meaning in life and that the, the replicants are interesting in that they're kind of an accelerated version of humanity. They have these very limited lifespans. So they're intelligent and they learn that they have a lifespan and they want to live longer which is a very human kind of concept even though these are androids these are these are replicants and then um you go to your creator right and this is this is all the way back to frankenstein but it, it it's something that a created being can do that we can't as humans right we can't go to a creator and demand reasons. I mean, it's the base of, of many religions to do that. Um, but it's not like we, you can't, you can't walk up to somebody and say, why am I here? Right. Instead we ask, or we, or we have a religion that explains it to us. And the, the replicants get to do that. They get to go to Tyrell and say, I want more life. Right. Why am I here? And so I think that's interesting. That that's mm-hmm. an interesting theme. That's one of the ones that I grab too. Is is it, amid the screaming and shooting and folding of origami, there is that question of uh, it's like a super accelerated existential question of who who are we? Why are we here? Why do we have to die? That the that the yeah you know replicants are asking. The happy ending didn't fit this movie either for me. It's a very controversial ending. Um, yeah, very controversial ending. I think I think changed at the last minute. Feels, and some of the feels changed, and some of the footage is from like another movie that they used to like show like the green mm-hmm. grass and things like that as they go. It, it, it is a it is a surprise that it ends that way. Honestly, um, I was expecting that that Decca was a replicant. Okay, well, so that is one of the great, I don't know if you've read about any of this, but that is one of the great debates about this movie, is that some of the people making it thought he was, some thought he wasn't. They kind of left it ambiguous. Um, if he is a replicant, I don't know how he survived to be old Harrison Ford in the new movie they're making, so I guess that will change uh, something about the oh, story. is he in the movie? Yeah, Harrison oh, well, Ford's in the movie. Well, that answers it then, doesn't it? Because does it, he or, or does shouldn't, it? shouldn't get old. Right. Right? Because... Shouldn't get shouldn't get old or uh, yeah or should not be there, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah it's a it's the fact I mean it's a classic and yet the fact that the, that they have redone it a couple of times and done alternate versions of it I think speaks to the fact that it's also a bit of a mess and that the the people who made it have kept thinking about going back and doing things to it especially after it became such a classic. 
Um, I think that's I think that says something about it. I think it also says something about the appeal of it that people want to see it again and want to have a new perspective about it and want to debate it. I think those are all in its favor. But I also think that you know the fact that Ridley Scott wants to fix it suggests that he thinks that it was kind of not right when he made it. And I think that's I mean I feel the same way about um, Brazil. Have you ever seen Brazil? No. Terry Gilliam. It's it's a similarly brilliant weird movie that has like three or four they did a dvd with like three or four different versions in the box set of it because there's so many different cuts of the movie and i feel like there's something there's something in that that like there if if your movie's got lots of different cuts that says something about it either you had a horrible you know horrible relationship with your studio or um or or you thought better of it later obviously the attitude toward the movie changed after it came out and that enabled people to make different cuts of it otherwise you just only ever have the one um so it's just kind of fascinating when that happens and blade runner like brazil blade runner has had that and it's kind of interesting uh, to to view that as a trait of this film that years later the creators of this movie made two different director's cut and ultimate cut or whatever it's final cut that are um that are different but you know again i don't have a huge fondness for this movie but i i appreciate it and it sounds like you're kind of in the ballpark too where it's like it's a really Mm -hmm. interesting movie yep but it's not necessarily like you feel like you want to hug it and watch it a bunch of times there there are a bunch of flaws in it that i wouldn't excuse if it didn't look the way it did it really does look great. I mean, it cannot enough. I mean, so much has been written about it, but it's it's fair. This is it looks amazing, and it completely changed uh, people's conceptions of science fiction futures and influenced so many movies. Somebody in our chat room was just saying, like anime, <laughs> like so much anime yeah. is Blade Runner. Like that is clearly a reference point for Blade Runner is or for anime is Blade Runner. And and it's true in, in live action movies too. There is so much that we owe to Blade Runner's look. Um, and, you know, it's funny because from that perspective, you can often look back on these old movies and say, oh, well, I don't see the big deal, not understanding that this is the thing that set the tone. And at the time, it was kind of a revelation. I also do think that, though, that at the time, the people who were lukewarm on it were lukewarm on it because they were seeing its flaws and that the, the you know, they were looking for as a movie and seeing the problems with the storytelling. And as it became a cult, it became more about the debate about Deckard and uh, you know some of the little details and all the things that you pick up if you watch the movie 10 times that if you watch it once you're just like whatever Um, and I think that maybe explains why a lot of cult movies become cult movies Mm -hmm. is that is that they unfold better over many viewings than they do when you just watch it once and let it go I was I'm looking forward to the next one like I'm looking forward to Blade Runner 2049 Yep. I like Ryan Gosling a lot, and, and I'm interested to see what could be done further in this universe. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I'm gonna, I'm waiting. I'm gonna do a wait and see on that one, right? Like, I'm not gonna be in line for it, but I'm, no. I'm, I'm ready to hear that it's an interesting movie and go see it if it is. 
If you want to find our show notes for this week, go to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 138. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors again, Encapsula, Tax Expander, Mac Weldon, and FreshBooks for helping support the show. Most of all, thank you for listening. You can find Jason's work online at sixcolors.com, and he is at JasonL on Twitter. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, and we'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Mr. Snell. Goodbye, everybody.